Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Happy Easter. Welcome to Easter at Renaissance. It's so great to see all of you. And we weren't but a day or two removed from Easter last year, and the staff and I sat down and we started planning what Easter this year was going to look like. This is our big weekend, just so you know. And we love this weekend. It's our favorite weekend of all weekends in the year, even more so than the Super Bowl. Okay, this is our Super Bowl. This is awesome for us. And we like this weekend for a couple reasons. Number one, we love meeting new people, right? And we know that the Easter weekend will bring out a lot of visitors to the church. And I just want to tell you something. If you're visiting with us today, you are our guest, okay? I want to treat you like I would treat you if you came to my house. The restrooms are right out these doors and around back. Listen, we're not going to ask anything of you. We're not going to ask you to stand at any moment. Grab the hand of the person next to you. We're not going to ask you to pray with anyone we're not going to ask you to do any of those things. We're not even going to, we're not even going to mention your wallet. So you're, you're welcome to relax and just settle in. Everything that we're doing is just to try to make this time that you're with us just an enjoyable experience. So know this, though. If you've come because someone's invited you, maybe you just relented. You're like, whatever, I'll go to church with you. Shut up already. Maybe that's you. If you've done that, You've made them so happy that you've come. I'm just saying, gold star, way to go, right? We love this weekend in meeting new people. The second reason we love this weekend is because this is the weekend that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me try that again. This is the... No, it's kind of a big deal for us. It's a, it's a tremendously large deal. In fact, that first Sunday, 2,000 years ago or so, they rejoiced that he was risen. And for thousands of years, every year, the churches get together and celebrate this reality that Jesus Christ is no longer in the tomb. He is risen. And the church over time has developed strange traditions like, you know, churches do. A pastor could stand on a stage much like myself and say these words. He could say he is risen and then the people sitting out there will just automatically respond. He is risen indeed. It's like a Pavlovian response. It's like they can't control it. Watch. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yeah, yes. It's an exciting day for us. And I know that there are people that we know, maybe friends, coworkers, family members, possibly as well. I'd even go so far as to say that there are some people here this weekend. I won't say that they're necessarily here now, although they might be. I don't know. But some of those people might say that, that you know, faith in Jesus is just really not that important. Like, it's good for you. Have you ever heard that before? I mean, that's good for you, but not so much for me. I'll take it or leave it. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I, I, maybe I tried it once or whatever. It didn't seem to work out or whatever it is. 
And they would say to us that, that faith in Jesus is, is useless. It's futile to use that word. And I'm going to say something, and this might shock some of you. So before you throw stones, right, listen, I, I agree with them to some extent. In fact, I firmly believe that there is a kind of faith in Jesus that is futile. It's useless. It's pointless. It's, it's impossible of producing any results in your life. And I'm not the first Christian leader to say something like this. There was a man named Paul. Paul, we call him the Apostle Paul. He lived during the time that Jesus was alive on the earth. And he is a very learned, educated man. In fact, he has written what we now consider half of our New Testament. Most everything we know about the, the theology or the doctrine of Jesus and having real faith in Jesus is rooted in the words of Paul. And he said, speaking to some Christians in an ancient city called Corinth, he looks to these people who have faith in Jesus and he says, your faith is futile, he says. It's useless, it's pointless, it is impossible to produce any useful result for you. If, he says, and he, he adds this conditional statement. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then, he says, your faith is futile. Then your faith is useless. Then it's pointless and it cannot help you at all. And he adds this sort of conditional statement. You guys remember middle school, high school, when you took advanced math, maybe algebra, right? Sorry for the bad memories. But you remember when the teacher stood before you and they said, if, if A equals B and B equals C, then a equals C. You remember that, right? These conditional statements are, are proving this reality. It's a real simple logic for us that if these things are true, then this also must be true. And, and maybe math isn't like your thing. You know, I get that. I understand that. But here's something I think all of us could resonate with. Do you remember the playground that you used to play on when you were growing up? Maybe it's a local park or maybe it's the one outside the school for like recess after lunch, you'd go play kick balls over here, right? They're, they're playing basketball over here, maybe throwing Frisbees or whatever's happening over here. And then over in the corners, this little piece of equipment called the teeter-totter. You guys remember the teeter-totter? Maybe you called it a seesaw. Did you call it a seesaw? You're wrong. It's a teeter-totter is what we call it. Yes, yes, teeter-totter. And, and the cool thing about the teeter-totter is you did not have to have any athletic ability to use it right? You didn't have to know how to kick a ball, shoot a basket, catch a Frisbee or nothing. You just needed to have mass. And mass I got so we could sit on the teeter-totter. But you did need one thing. You needed a buddy, a friend, right? And the great thing about your buddy is they didn't have to have any athletic ability either. We'll call this friend Pastor Joe. Joe has no <laughs> athletic ability, he has many things, and he's, in, he's great at a lot of things, but hand-eye coordination is not one of them. You want to do something fun today, on your way out, just grab your keys and say, hey, Joe, and toss them to him. And he, I have a stress ball in my office that I, you know, when I'm thinking and I just throw it up against the wall, Joe walks in, I'll toss it to him. It usually ricochets off his hand, off his glasses, off my lamp, and under the couch. I, I stopped playing with Joe, I'm just saying. But think about this. When, when the other person on the teeter-totter goes down, then the other person goes up. And if you go down, then they go up. It's 
binary. It's, it's if they're down, you're up. They, they are mutually exclusive from one another. They cannot both be up and they cannot both be down. The saddest sight of all sights is when you walk by or drive by a playground and you see all of the children playing, having fun, and then there's that one lonely kid maybe sitting on the teeter-totter by themselves. And they, they grab the, the bar and they jump up, but they just don't stay in the air. They come crashing back down. And over time, they, they keep jumping and jumping and jumping. But the teeter-totter is just not working. I think, I think what Paul is, is helping us see is that our faith in Jesus, if it is not rooted in the resurrection of Christ, is like a person sitting on a teeter-totter all by themselves. That over time, we will jump up and down. We will put energy into it. We will strive. We will work. We will discipline. We'll do all of those things. But over time, it will do nothing for us. We'll grow weary, tired, frustrated. And eventually, unfortunately, sometimes we just walk away from it altogether. But it doesn't have to be that way. See, Paul says that, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. But the converse is also true. That if he has been raised from the dead, wait for it. If he has been raised from the dead, then our faith is useful for us. He also adds that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. And we'll get to that in a, a minute. But if he has been raised from the dead, then the sin issue is not an actual issue at all for us. I want to tell you the story of that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. And I use the word story, but I do not want you to mishear me. This is not a fictional account. This is not some make-believe thing. This is a, an actual historical event that took place. Jesus, for the last three, three and a half years of his adult life, he had gathered some men to travel the countryside with him. We call these men the disciples. He called them friends. And he took these men as he traveled around the countryside and he began to, began to teach them about the kingdom of God and what it looks like to have a relationship with God and to serve God's people. And he began to teach them and then anyone else who would come along to hear these words about the kingdom of God. And then he also began to tell them that, that he is the chosen one or the Messiah that the prophets in the Old Testament would speak of. And if you don't know this, but the Old, the Old Testament Bible has these men and women in, that would talk about one day God will send a man, a Messiah, a chosen one. A person will come and he will save God's people. He will rescue God's people. He will be a king. And he will establish his kingdom on the earth. And one day when he comes, God's people will rejoice. And Jesus looks down at them and he tells them, I am him. I am the Messiah, he says. But the religious leaders in the day, the Bible tells us, grew jealous of the crowds that Jesus would gather. That their crowds, his crowds were much larger than their crowds. And so they walked to Jesus and they told him, you must be silent. These, these miracles that you're performing as God validates your claims, by the way, the blind eyes that are opening, the deaf ears that are hearing, the, the lame legs that are leaping like a gazelle that the prophet said would happen when Messiah came, you need to knock it off. And Jesus says, criticize me. Let's try this on for size. How about you people? And I always picture Jesus lovingly wagging his finger, like a grandma used to. <laughs> you listen to me here, young man. 
he tells them, you, you people, you have all of these traditions of men, these rules and regulations, this, this wonderfully intricate religious system, and you care more for that than you do for God himself and God's people. Oh, now the anger inside of them burned hotly, and they decided not only will he not obey us and, and be quiet, we've decided now he must die. They must silence him forever. They can't kill him because the area that they're in is still controlled by Rome. It'd be a criminal offense to kill someone. So they say, we need Rome to kill him. So they connive this plan to have Jesus killed. Jesus, in the last week of his life, he famously has a last meal with his disciples, the Last Supper painting. You guys seen that? He has that meal with them, and then they leave, and he goes away to pray. It's in the middle of the night, and as he's praying, a betrayer, the religious leaders, and some soldiers arrive. They arrest him, and under the cover of darkness, they convene a mock trial with false juries, and they levy false accusation after false accusation after false accusation against Jesus and declare him guilty. When sun comes up, they drag this supposed guilty man before the Roman governor, and they say, this man deserves death. And, and the governor is like, slow your roll, bro. I just woke up. What's happening exactly? And he says, this man has broken our laws. This man has done this. This man is saying things. He's blaspheming our God. And the Roman governor says, I see nothing wrong with him. He's not broken our laws. I don't have a problem with him, and they will not have it. Crucify him, they cry. Kill him, they cry. Silence him, they cry. And eventually the governor just literally washes his hands of this whole ordeal and says, if you want him dead, you can have him dead. He orders soldiers to take him where they beat him. It's called a flogging. It's the most horrific thing you could imagine. Some people believe that Jesus was beaten so badly that his, his closest friends couldn't recognize him. Imagine the worst car crash you've ever seen on TV or driven by and the mangled body that is laying there on the road. That is a picture of Jesus. And that barely alive body, they strap a wooden beam to his back and force him to carry it outside of the city up a hill where they fashion that beam into another and make a cross where they nail him to it. And for six hours, he agonally, agonally, he hangs on the cross until three o'clock in the afternoon, he breathes his last and dies. Joseph, a friend of his, comes to the, the cross, takes down his dead, broken, lifeless body and places it inside of a tomb. A new tomb, the Bible tells us, and this is significant only for this reason, that there are no other bodies in this tomb. It is brand new. No other corpses, no other bones in there. Brand new tomb. He lays Jesus' body in there, rolls the stone in front of it to keep the stench of decay inside and the animals on the outside. But as they think about this, the, the, Roman, the religious leaders, excuse me, the religious leaders remember that Jesus had said while he was still alive, he says, when I die, I will rise again on the third day. He had said that. The religious leaders heard this and they're going, wait a minute, didn't he say that he would rise? So they have this concern that somehow the disciples, his friends are going to come under the cover of night and steal his body out and then open the tomb and go, look, everyone, he's alive. The tomb is empty. So these religious leaders go before the Roman governor again and say, would you please give us a guard to watch over the tomb? So be it. 
and he sends a guard of Roman soldiers. Now, it's not a soldier. That's 16 trained military men, each responsible for six square feet of coverage. Can you imagine this? 16 men, shoulder to shoulder, standing in front of a tomb. Now, imagine their shock on that Sunday morning when those women come sauntering to the tomb, only to see the stone rolled away, the tomb, in fact, empty, and angels saying, he's not here, he is risen, he's alive. What is happening? The disciples, the ladies, they run to tell the disciples, ah, and the, the, the guards, they run to tell the religious leaders, ah, he's alive. And the religious leaders go, shush. And they pull out their wallets and they begin to tell them, do not tell people the tomb was empty because he's alive. Tell them that the disciples came and stole his body. And they bribe these soldiers. The Bible tells us that there are still people who believe that to this day, that the disciples stole his body. Now, there are many theories as to why the tomb was empty, one of which, one of which I believe he's alive, but there are many. But this one, that they stole his body, is preposterous. It's ridiculous. Okay, this is their idea, that some simple peasant Galilean fisherman and an ex-governmental employee, a tax collector, right, somehow connived Mission Impossible together in their brains and broke through SEAL Team 6 to steal the body of Jesus... So then what? Bury it in the desert? To leave it out there? And then to take that supposed secret to their graves for the next 40 years, not one of these men ever recounted the story that Jesus is alive. Under the threat of violence, torture, and even death, none of them said it was a lie. Why? Because it's true. It's a true story. So if Paul says, Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. But, he says, if he has been raised, then your faith is altogether something different. It's useful to you. It's helpful to you. It will benefit you. You can read all of scripture. And I, I pray at some point in your life, you get a Bible and you read scripture. Hear me, if you do not own a Bible, underneath the seat around you is a hardback black Bible. Take that Bible with you. If you don't like that Bible, we have some really nice ones in the lost and found. You can take one of them. Just cross out whoever Frank was and write your name in there. You can have it. Leather bound, genuine leather. Genuine, that's right. <laughs> but the Bible tells us of all the blessings available from God, but only, hear me, only through Jesus, rooted in the, the resurrection of our Savior. John chapter 10 tells us that Jesus has come to give us life, not any life, but an abundant life, a life to the full. If you could just nod in agreement, who would want a better life right now? Yes. James chapter 1 says, if you want wisdom, just ask God and he gives it to you, rooted in Christ based on the resurrection. Philippians 4, I think, tells us that if you want the peace of God, the, the peace that transcends all understanding, when your life is spiraling out of control, struggle, strife, turmoil, everything around you, it's a, it's a war happening close to you. And the peace of God can come to you, but hearing only through Christ who's been raised from the dead. There's a hope that Peter talks about in 1 Peter that you can only find in Christ. And on and on and on and on I could go. But hear me, the, most, the one thing that matters more than anything is Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that because Christ has been raised from the dead, we now have 
now have available to us victory over sin. Uh, I just like hopped a little bit right there. (laughs) Victory over sin. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But if he's been raised, then you are no longer in your sins. Now, what does in your sins even mean? What we need to understand is all of humanity, you, me, all of mankind, everyone who's ever lived and ever will live is born with a particular iniquity inside of them. This iniquity or issue is called sin. We have it by nature. It's who we are. There was a man named Adam, his wife called Eve, and in the garden a long, long, long time ago, they disobeyed God and sin entered the world. And because we're descendants of them, we have sinful natures. And for for those of you that have children, and remember how precious they were when they were babies, And it's difficult to consider that inside of that precious cherub thing that you're holding, there's a dark, blackened, hardened heart. (laughs) You don't believe me. You let said baby grow up to be a three or a four-year-old, and they begin to sneak. They begin to tell white lies, we call it. They begin to do like mischievous stuff. Listen, that is their sin nature maturing. And you let that grow. And it continues to produce more and more mischief. In fact, the Bible tells us that the eventual result of all sin is, in fact, death. You don't believe me. Look at the sinful things in your life and tell me that it hasn't caused death in relationships and endeavors and everything else you've tried to do in your life. But if he's been raised from the dead, the fact that God tells us that he's perfect and holy and righteous and mankind is sinful, it just means that we can only reap what sin makes available to us. It's eternal condemnation. It's eternal separation from God. But because God loves us so much, he's, he's developed this system where we can come, we can offer a sacrifice for our sins. We can take a bull, a ram, or a goat, and we can offer it as a sacrifice. The Bible says that there will be no remission of sin unless, a, unless blood is shed. It's macabre, I know, it sounds crazy, I know, but this is the standard that God has laid before us. So we sacrifice that animal and God atones for our sin and our relationship with him is restored until you sin again. And so you bring another animal, another bull, another ram, another goat to the altar. You sacrifice it and your relationship is restored again. Woo! Until you sin again. And it is the sin shampoo cycle of lather, rinse, repeat over and over and over. But God decided in the fullness of time that he would send his son, Jesus, who John the baptizer calls the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus comes, the son of God, and he lays down his life on a cross as a sacrifice for you and me, for us. No longer are we bound to take animals, dragging them unwilling to the altar. Jesus willingly endures pain, suffering, sorrow. He takes it for you. And God rewards his obedience by raising him on the third day. And now we are no longer bound by the sinful nature given to us, but have the opportunity for something else. If he has been raised from the dead, then we are no longer in our sins, he says. Well, if we're not in our sins, then what are we in? Glad you asked. We are in Christ now. By faith in Jesus, through the resurrection, we are now been placed inside of Christ. Now, what does that even mean? Picture a, a blanket or a robe or something that you throw over your shoulders and just envelop yourself on a cold winter morning. 
and it just feels comforting and it's, it's helpful to you. That's the picture we have with Jesus, we, that he's surrounded us. When God, holy and perfect and righteous God, looks down upon us, he no longer sees a sinful person and all their sinful past. Listen, some of you need to pay attention. When God looks at us, he no longer sees our sinful past, but he sees Jesus around us now. The righteousness that he sees is Christ's alone. The shed blood of Jesus washes us, and now God sees us as white as snow, the Bible tells us. If we are not in our sins, we are in Christ. And Paul, speaking to these same Christians in that ancient city of Corinth, says these words. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he says, they are a new creation. Who? Anyone. Oh, yes, anyone. Not just the religious elite, the wealthy, the good-looking. It's for ugly people, too. You're welcome, Keith. Yes. (laughs) Amen. It's for anyone to receive. And if they are in Christ, then they are a new creation. God supernaturally deposits inside of us new desires, new passions, new pursuits. No longer are we a slave to to follow our selfish desires, but we long to serve God and his son, Jesus, to live by faith and faith alone, to do the ridiculously crazy things in our life because he's calling us to them. He says, behold, the old has passed away. Euphemistically, he's saying, the the past, hear me, your past is dead and buried now. It's passed away and the new has come. The new has come. It's available to us. This faith that we believe in, it it, it is only rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. Back to that teeter-totter example, the resurrection is that fulcrum part under which the whole thing works. It will not work without the resurrection. And I need you to hear this. A couple decades ago at an Easter service, not unlike this one here, I heard this message for the first time. And I say it, I didn't hear it for the first time. I'd heard it many times before. Some of you know this story, right? It's it's your story that you heard this message of Jesus, Jesus told you many times, but for some reason on that day, I heard it. My eyes were open. My ears were open. I began to receive this true thing about Jesus. The story of an empty tomb made sense to me. It made sense to me in in a way that faith only can have it make sense. And on that day, my life became new. I don't know how to explain it, man. I wish, I wish, I wish there was like a, like a, um, I wish I could go like this, like is pixie dust a thing? I don't know. Is that witchcraft? But forgive me if I, I'm not into witchcraft, but if you, if I could do this and save some of you, if I could have you receive it by faith, I would. I can't. God alone saves people. God alone opens the the degenerate heart and places faith inside of it. God alone does that. And we come alongside and we help. We preach, we open the Bible, we sing, we do all of these things. But it is God in his sovereignty who calls men and women his own. And I've prayed for you today. I've wept. I've wept over some of you today that God would come and change you today. 22 years I'll be married this year. I promise you, we wouldn't have made it out of year two if Jesus hadn't intervened. 
Not her fault, by the way, my fault. <laughs> Throw that out there. Please don't leave. I can change. I'll never do it again. The constant refrain. And Jesus interrupts that brokenness of my life and sets me on a course for eternity. No longer in sins to be eternally condemned forever, but as John chapter 3, verse 16 says, I now have the possibility of eternal life with God. But only if we have faith to believe that the tomb was empty, that Jesus is alive. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for me. I'm going to ask God to do what only God can do. I'm not going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and raise your hand if you want to accept Christ today. I, I wish it was that easy. I know this, when the band comes back up and we go back into a time of worship, there might be a moment for some of you where you're sitting there and all of a sudden there's a hotness in your chest. It just feels something strange, something's weird. I just challenge you with this. If, if God is speaking to you, then the simple response is something like this. God, I, I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he came to earth to save me, that he willingly gave me his life on the cross and that God, you rewarded him by raising him on the third day. And now I too have the hope in the resurrection after my death. I mean, you can just simply say some things under your breath, pray with a friend, whatever you wanna do, you go home and do it while you're eating ham and deviled eggs, whatever it takes for you, make that happen. I wanna pray for us. God, I thank you for our time together. I thank you that you're a good God and that everything you do for us is good. <laughs> Even when it seems to be difficult, when we're accosted or confronted by the, the own depravity of our lives, God, you, you show us those things because you want us to know that we can be released from those things. That what you would lovingly say to us is that there's really no need to live in sorrow for the things that you do because Christ has come to absolve you of those things. For those of, those of us in the room who are not believers, God, I pray that you would speak to them in, in a way that they would understand, that you would draw them to yourself and they would respond to you in a way that you would understand and that you would save some today. And for the people in the room like myself who would call ourselves Christians already, Lord, I pray that you would shake the tree of our lackluster Christian living you would awaken us to the reality that there's an abundant life available to us, that we only must live in more faith, that we only must believe more. If we can believe in an empty tomb, God, we can believe that you can do crazy things in our lives too. And so I pray that we be a bold witness for you in whatever way or capacity that would make sense to us. Andrew, when he first started to follow Jesus, the very first person he went to find was his brother, Simon Peter. And he says, bro, you gotta come follow this Jesus, dude. God, make us people like that. Don't let us rely on the, the, the wonderment of the stars, right? Declare the goodness of who you are. Don't let us wait for the sunset and the sunrise to declare how awesome and majestic you are. Let us declare it for you. Let us join with all of creation and, and declare the goodness of who you are. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. 
And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicator.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.